Thank you to Pastor Gary for leading us in that. Um, you probably are like me. You pick up on some of these things, but I always appreciate uh, Pastor Gary's timing of illustrations. Um, you know, the stories he tells are are helpful and they're and they're good, even though they are simplistic and even sometimes icky, like the water bottle thing. Um, but what I love about, and Pastor Tom and I talk about this and trying to grow in this skill ourselves is just that he knows right when our minds are going, what does that look like? And then right when we're thinking that, he comes in with an illustration. So uh, don't ever change, Pastor Gary. Um, I want to uh, just welcome you here this morning. Um, my name is Brent. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, just delighted to come and open up God's word together. Um, before we get into our text in the end of Acts chapter 9 and leading into Acts chapter 10, I just want to put my own plug on the announcement that we're making about this concert coming up on the 12th. And and as Pastor Tom said, they are two different events, so you can come to one and not the other. It's totally fine. They are free of charge and that sort of thing. It's been several years since Faith has hosted, well, we host concerts, but it's been several years since Faith has gone out and either looked for a performing artist or worked in partnership with a local radio station to bring in the type that the, the concert that we were thinking we want to, you know, promote and advertise and all these sorts of things. We still open our building up and, and, uh, we have some Southern gospel acts that come in here and kind of pack the house out and everything. And a lot of people from our community and our church draw a lot of interest in that. So it was a little bit scary for us for the first time ever to say we want to invite this guy and we'll pay the fee and we'll get him here and all that sort of stuff, not really knowing what we were getting into. But I'll tell you how it came about real quick is um, uh, there was a podcast that kind of turned the or revolutionized the way that a lot of pastors were looking at church ministry over the last several years. Um, and it came right, right as we were contemplating what was working, not working, with the reasons for our health in our churches versus the, the reasons for a lot of churches' demise and COVID. It exposed a lot of weaknesses in the church culture. There's a podcast that came out called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And Mars Hill, not to get into a long story, was a, a growing, burgeoning church in the Seattle area that was seeing thousands and thousands of people come on the heels of good, reformed gospel teaching, it would seem but was brought down by a narcissistic kind of personality in the lead pastor and all the things and the chaos that it uh, ensued and everything. And he was one of the rare kind of national figures to lose his position as pastor, not for some immoral reason that we would normally see in those kind of situations, if you follow me. So it was, it was a fascinating story, and, and it was one that was years and years old. And this podcast came at the right time to make all of us start looking in the mirror and say, what really matters in church? What really matters in terms of how we're perceived as leaders of churches and all those kinds of things? And it was really a, a very humbling and painful process to go through. But every pastor I ran into, we were all recommending this podcast. Smack dab. And, and at the end of each podcast, there would be some really cool song at the end and just something kind of capture the heart of what that episode was about. And there was at one point this one singer that came up in the end of that. Keep in mind, everyone around the world's listening to this. And I was like, man, I love this guy's voice. And the song that he sang was so poignant to the, the topic of the episode. And I was like, Jeremy Casella, it sounds familiar. And then I remembered that uh, um, my, my, my friend uh, Eric had said to me some years, uh, about a year or so ago, you should really listen to Jeremy Casella. He's amazing. And then he, he invited him up for a, a house show and I wasn't able to make it. So I still hadn't met him. 
But uh, I started looking after him, listening to his music, and of course that podcast song really just kind of wrecked me emotionally and, and spiritually and stuff. And so I started looking into it, and then I was like, you know, maybe, maybe we stick our necks out a little bit and invite him. He's Nashville, and you know, he he can d- definitely find other circles and other things. And lo and behold, a church up in the Brewer area hosts him for the last couple of years and stuff. So he was going to be in town-ish. So I was like, yeah, let's reach out and see if he'd come and, and, and play for us here. Not knowing really what his performance would be. I figured like any artist, he's just going to do a, a, you know, he's got a, several CDs out and stuff. Oh, CDs, who, CDs kids are a, a disc that was like this big and anyway, download his music, look it up and, and download it. It's amazing. Um, so anyway, uh, a long story, even longer, I guess, um, uh, I, I was able to speak to him over the phone, just kind of evaluating whether or not we'd have room for him and, and it would work for us. And I really felt like instead of talking to a kind of slick performer type um, who has his own stuff, I mean, he has a whole history and, you know, a, a heartache in his former marriage and all these kinds of things that, that were so relatable about his testimony. But still, I was like, I don't know if there's depth there because a lot of times I hate to burst the bubble, but... Ron, our elder and guy who runs in these circles a lot with Christian artists and stuff, there isn't always a lot of depth behind these lyrics that we love. And so I was expecting to be a little bit disappointed. And instead, it felt like I was talking to one of our elders, like in a meeting, and he was diagnosing the breakdown of the church and the problem and all that's going on and how we've lost sight of the gospel. And he just wants to bring his artistry to the thing that leads the church into singing the truths of the gospel again so that we, as Pastor Gary just got done telling us, you know, that we preach the gospel to ourselves on a regular basis so we encounter his greatness and stuff. And I was so encouraged and refreshed after the phone call. I went to the elders. I was like, we got to have this guy in. What do we think? And and so I, I'm I'm just giving you my plug because I want you to know that in a couple weeks as he comes, it'll be worth your time to come. Family friendly, of course, you know, it's a great thing to bring the kids to on a, uh, you know, it'll be air conditioned. So it'll be a hot day. Let's bank on and then come in and be a part of the concert. But you won't be disappointed. Invite your friends, those that aren't in our church or belong to other churches. We don't care. Let's fill the room up and let's come and be blessed uh, with his skills. Uh, He's an incredible singer. Um, and a great guitar player, but also I think his heart's going to really encourage us and lead us in worship. And of course, those, those seminars during the day, we've already had a chance to peruse the outlines, and we feel like that's just an extension of what we already teach on Sundays. And so it's really going to aid the things that you're hearing from the pulpit and from your small groups and from DGT and all those things. It's kind of all coming in, ready for the pun? It's all coming in concert with the things that we are teaching. So even if you can make it out for those daytime seminars, again, we're not going to really worry about signups a lot. You know, you'll be on your own for meals uh, in between the seminar and the concert and stuff like that, but we'll have some refreshments. But we'll put, if we have too many people, we'll meet in this room for the seminar. And if not, then we'll be over in the Lee Center around tables and stuff like that. So we'll just make it work. But uh, I'm just asking you to support this kind of thing is that, like I said, it's out of the norm for us, and we'd love to see this happen more and more often. All right. Now, with the time I have, which, according to my watch, is about 35 minutes, so some parts of this I'm going to move through quickly, I want to just get us into our time in the Scriptures in Acts 9. Many years ago, 
we had a, um, a, a woman in our church who was being called to the mission field. This is a big theme of our month of July and going into August. We're talking a lot about missions and going out because it is the theme of the book of Acts. It's the church on the move. And uh, we had a woman in our midst who was being called and trained and equipped to go to the foreign field in an area that was not open to the gospel. It was a very hostile territory. So much of what she had to do was under the radar screen. And it was a very tense time, I'm sure, for her, but especially for us as our sending church to think, what kind of danger is this woman going into? And I remember her coming back after a successful trip and to report some of the findings and some of the accomplishments and all those sorts of, hi, Colette, how you doing? I don't, I don't know why every time you're coming back and you visit, I have to see you and I have to say hi. Um, so <laughs> I won't do that to everybody else that I'm noticing. I'll try to stick to the notes, Brent. It's not easy doing what I do. I'm just telling you, I think there's some ADD there as I'm proving, as I cannot get back on track. She came back and shared her stories of meeting and encountering these ladies in particular was her field of mission. And she said, the conversation I had with one woman just baffled me and changed my mind and gave me all the courage I needed to continue this mission. She said, as I came to her, I didn't even get any word out. And she said, I dreamt your face. She goes, what do you mean? She goes, last week. I had a dream that had no connection to anything and of course never seen you before. I dreamt your face. What do you have to tell me? I mean, talk about a wide open. I mean, she traveled thousands of miles under a wrap of her head to be inconspicuous. And yet still all of that came through. And this woman said, I dreamt you. What do you have to say to me? Not only did it blow my theology out of the water, because I come from a church tradition that puts a lot less emphasis on those kinds of miracles and things. So it wrecked me a little bit to where I had to think about how is God moving, especially in these closed areas where the name of Jesus and the life of Jesus is not prominent. It's not a church on every corner and things. Does he still move that way in order to make his name and his face known? But I also thought to myself, it's interesting that she spent so much time in preparation, in learning languages and preparing for cultural shifts and raising all kinds of money to get there. And it wasn't just a one-sided preparation that the Lord was also paving the way for the receiver as well. So we're coming into the story in Acts 9 where I think we're going to see both sides of that coin, the movement of the Lord is the coin, that the preparation happens for the sender the messenger, and the receiver as well. This is the early days of the church, as we've said. This is now a shift away from the, the acts of Saul, who would eventually become known as Paul, the great apostle. And, and Luke brings our attention back to the doings of Peter. We were introduced to Peter in this post-resurrection um, atmosphere, and we saw that, that he was a lead voice in all of the contention that was happening in Jerusalem. And then we walked away from what was going on with Peter and uh, started focusing on the conversion of Saul. Now Luke brings us back and says, let's not forget about Peter for a moment, because the Lord is doing something incredible with him. And there's a lot of text to cover a lot. I'm going to spend most of my time reading the scriptures and commenting as we go. But before we get into the bulk of the text, I want to just read that first verse called, uh, it's number 31 of chapter 9, to set the stage. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace 
and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Doesn't that sound like the end of the story? I had to highlight that verse because I said it sounds like how we finish all of our stories. The church lived in, in peace and happiness forever after. Why is it that when we hit moments like this, and there are some in life where it's finally the, the bills are paid, life is smooth, things are going on. Why is it that's when the Lord sends a shakeup? Just when things seemed good. And that's exactly what happens going forward into verse 32. This is actually the start of the longest narrative in the book of Acts because this is an incredibly important shift in the spread of the gospel. Jesus had given the great commission on his way out in his ascension, right? He said, I, I, I leave you a commandment that you are to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He sends out with that message in Matthew 28. In Acts 1, he's telling his followers, his disciples, the apostles, that, that they are going to spread the message first in Judea, then in Samaria, it becomes regional, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. This is what is happening or right before our eyes. But now it's a significant shift because so far it's been taking place in a Jewish context. Now we're going to meet our first Gentile convert named Cornelius. We'll get there after a couple of uh, uh, vignettes along the way. So let's pick up in verse 32. And again, we have a lot to read here. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Next vignette, verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Notice, just a little bit along the way, notice their faith. She's dead. They know it. The next verse is going to tell us, but they know Peter's not too far away. Maybe let's not totally put her away. Verse 38, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was there sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. So maybe not just faith, but desperation. This girl meant so much to us and we loved her so much that we, we will hold out against all hope that maybe there's another chance here. What does Peter do? He puts them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. I've underlined a tanner in my notes here. It's important. We'll come back to that. Luke's going to remind us a couple of occasions. That's the second vignette. Now let's read the third. Beginning in verse one of chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius 
a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people that would be specifically to the Jewish context, the people in uh, the Hebrew people that he was uh, um, uh, in the midst of and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a different Simon, a tanner, Luke wants to remind us, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So again, we're seeing the gospel move from a, a, a Jewish context in uh, starting to um, reach the ears. And, and I'm actually going to mention something a little bit later. It's not just starting at this point, but it's reaching the ears now of even those who are outside of that context, even the Gentiles. So let's see how God is preparing both sides of that coin. First, let's look at how the messenger is being prepared by the Lord according to the purposes that God wants to achieve. As a side note here, but I still think importantly, we have to men- we have to remember that God is going to prepare us. He's sometimes going to be gentle with us about that. Sometimes he's going to prepare us aggressively, but he is always going to prepare us appropriately. He knows what we need when we need it. We can't necessarily determine the strength or the, the gentleness of which he's going to come forward with. What we're going to see here is the preparation of the messenger is going to be expanding. It's going to be growing and it's going to, we're going to see that there's a stretching going on in the life of Peter. In particular, his comfort zone is stretching. It's starting to take him to territories that like you and I would feel in that, in that context. I'm not sure I'm ready for this. Geographically, we see this in just the, the movement of the map. He starts off in Lydda, which is about 20 so miles away from Jerusalem. Then the Holy Spirit takes him further into Joppa, which is another 10 or 15 miles beyond that. And then eventually to Caesarea. So now he's 65 miles away from Jerusalem. And so we might look back and say, well, it wasn't all peaches and, and whatever. It wasn't all peachy keen, whatever the expression is. Uh, in Jerusalem, the church was under fire. The church was uh, under uh, great persecution. Isn't it interesting, though, that even in situations that are uncomfortable for us or that are stressful to us, or maybe even sometimes downright abusive, it's hard for us to leave those circumstances because it's what we know. And so even Peter, being a human, one who walks in his flesh, as he's being led further and further away from the city, the center of where he would um, have, have derived his worship and spent his time and, and known the locations and all that sort of stuff, he's getting dragged further and further and further out by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Any one of us would say, well, I don't know what I don't know. I don't know what's waiting for me whenever I go to these places. But we also see that that his impact is starting to stretch and starting to grow. We've mentioned three locations. We've mentioned three people, Aeneas and Tabitha or Dorcas and Cornelius. And Aeneas is one who's been paralyzed for eight years. And he says to Aeneas what he heard Jesus say to the guy that was at the pool in Bethesda. 
get up, take up your bed and walk. It doesn't mean make it up, make it neater. He says, you don't need it there anymore. You're mobile now. You've been fully healed. And Peter, with all the confidence it would seem as what he saw Jesus demonstrate, says the same thing. Rise and take up your bed. And then all the onlookers, it says the people of those towns and surrounding, were very impressed and very uh, intrigued to the point of belief. So Peter is, is borrowing, if you will, from the methods and the actions of his Savior, So why stop there when he meets Tabitha or in the Greek translated Dorcas, which the name means gazelle, which when we think of a gazelle, we think of grace and beauty and all these sorts of things. And, but I want to caution if you're going to, some people get hung up on, they want to name their kids biblical names. And I I get that, but I want to caution public service announcement here. When there's a translation of a name in the text, that is more favorable than one, it's okay to use the one that sounds a little more culturally. I just, I don't know, my heart breaks every time. And I, and I have encountered a Dorcas or two. I'm just letting you know. You Google it, they exist. And I'm like, parents, come on. Did you not see that Tabitha was in the text as well? I get that you want to honor. I look back and look at the story. It was like a beautiful story and what she represents is amazing and all that sort of stuff. But there's Tabitha too. Big Tabitha. And I'm not picking on any Dorcases. I'm saying I'm parents shape up. Anyway, <clears throat> public service announcement. Um, she, what is she known for? She's adored by these by this church. She's she's known for her good works, her charity. The widows have come and they said, "Look what she's made for us." And everything. Their hearts are broken. We're not ready to be absent from her yet. So Peter, he's been trained well. He heard Jesus say to uh, Jairus's daughter, he said, uh, Talita Kumai, which means little girl, rise. So he says to her, get out of the room. He says to everybody else, get out of the room. And he kneels and he prays. And then when he addresses her, he says, Tabitha Kumai, changes one little letter in there, which means Tabitha, rise up. I can't help but think that there are hairs on the back of Peter's neck that are standing up as he's thinking. I, I can't, this text doesn't tell me he's, he's reliving that moment that he saw Jesus do this, but I mean, obviously, right? And so Peter is like thinking to myself, thinking to himself, all the good I get to do, all the power I get to demonstrate is all a result of what I just saw my Savior do. It's all of him. This isn't Peter's brilliance. It isn't his, his, uh, his power that he's demonstrating. And, and my flesh wants to read what's going on in Peter's life and going, how is his head not this big? There are people from cities away saying, the great Peter, the apostle has come, invite him and stuff. I mean, you can't get a preacher now to come and, and, and be a guest by invitation without him thinking, I must be somebody. Because they want me to come. Doesn't ha- doesn't happen for me, so I'm I'm good. Uh, anyway, so not true. I'm just kidding. Um, but but really, how is this not blowing Peter's head up? But remember what Peter just walked through some about ten years prior is that he was leveled and absolutely humiliated in terms of the strength of his own flesh being proven worthless. 
in the face of his Savior. And then Jesus, after he's resurrected and he's about ready to explain, this is where your forgiveness comes from. He says, and I'm going to deliver the message specifically to Peter so he knows. And that undoes so much of Peter's flesh. Now, like you and me, he's going to have it to contend with until the day he dies. That his flesh, his selfishness and everything will rear its ugly head from time to time. But you can't tell me that this is a guy who hasn't been absolutely reduced to where he was so braggadocious and I'll do anything for God and he'll be so lucky to have me that if anybody encounters him now, they'd be like, what a humble guy. Peter, a humble guy. So moments like this to be able to say, Tabitha Kumai must have just been like, how do I get to say this? And she sits up. And, and he's probably keeping his cool, but he's thinking it works. <laughs> so this is all going to lead into how he's going to interact with Cornelius. We're not going to get into that interaction yet. That'll come at a later date. Because again, it's the longest narrative in the book. There's a lot to discuss there. But Cornelius is a man of, of power and influence, of great respect. He's a centurion. He commands hundreds He's got an official title, if you will. It's not just him in particular, but anybody that fits this description is, is he's a God-fearer. And that was an actual uh, name given to the group of people that were outside of Judaism, but, but at least by birth. And then they said, but we want to trade in all this uh, pantheon of gods and everything that our Greek culture um, uh, worships and bows to. We want to follow the one true God. We are giving ourselves to this monotheistic way of life where we believe that one God exists. And so we are converting, if you will, to that practice into that religion but they were referred to as proselytes at the gate in other words there was a stopping point for them they said you're not necessarily welcome into all the areas of the temple where the the sacrifices are why because you have not yet been uh fully circumcised and without getting into a lot of detail as an adult that becomes less and less appealing over time and so there would be a lot of people that would say i'll stop short of that practice while still worshiping the one true god and so they made a concession, if you will, for that and said, we welcome you into the faith, but there are certain things that we reserve for the truest of our own people. And so this is who Cornelius was. And I mentioned to you that there's a stretch that's going on. There's a progress, but if we're not careful, we could think that what happened was kind of like a, a peak here where it's like, okay, he heals a paralytic, pretty awesome and powerful. We don't really see that. And all of a sudden he raises the dead, which is really amazing. And then, yeah, he evangelizes, gives the gospel, helps someone come into the kingdom of God, right? That's what we're going to see with Cornelius. But really in God's economy, this is an escalation of impact that, yes, we heal the, the uh, diseases of the day to prove that the power of Jesus was real. And then we raise the dead to prove that he is the one true living God and that he conquers death and hell so that we can be saved from our sins. The ultimate impact of all of this is that we would be rescued. There's no greater need than the salvation of a soul. And I think Peter was recognizing this. While all of this is stretching in Peter's life, his self-reliance continues to shrink. We've already talked about a pretty drastic shrinking of his, uh, um, his uh, hubris and, and all of those things, his self-reliance. But there's still more to be done, which rears its ugly head for a moment. 
Peter's flesh is continually being reduced as a good Hebrew, as a good Jew. He is still faithful to the customs that have formed the identity of the Jewish nation. And so that, that God, as he said, I am a holy God, I'm calling you to distinct behaviors that are separate from every other nation, even the ones that we'd look at and be like, that's really silly, or that seems over the top, or whatever. God was setting apart for himself a people that would be so unique in belief and practice and livelihood uh, or lifestyle that others would look and almost be jealous or would be jealous and say their God cares about them enough to be that detailed, to be that overseeing. I used that illustration for you guys several weeks ago or a couple months ago where the friend that I had who felt like his mom did not care so much about how he spent his days. It was easier just to give him money so he could go off and do his own thing. And he was jealous of the family structures where parents were a little bit more about the rules and what not to do. And we won't allow you to be out too late at night and all that stuff. He recognized too much freedom to just be whoever I want to be was not very loving, wasn't very parenting. This is what God wanted the rest of the world to see, that he cared so much about a people that he would go through all of this to set them apart, to make them special in his eye. And so Peter was bought into all these things. He was a regular practicer of all those things. God said, I want you to be holy. Come out from among them and be separate. All of these things that pointed to holiness. And Peter said, that's who I am. And they were particular about their ceremonial uncleanness. They couldn't touch dead things and they had to be um, washed and all these kinds of things to prepare them for the sacrifices and the worship. All of these great details you see in places like the book of Leviticus. And here is Peter kind of bafflingly being walked into the, the home of a paralytic to be at the presence of a dead girl, to live in the house of a tanner who's dealing with animal hides and the place stinks to high heaven and all this stuff. And he's in these environments probably going, how did I get here? It's not who I've been. It's not who I am. And yet the Lord seems to be in it. He's leading me into these places that are unknown to me. They're uncomfortable to me. They're ceremonially unclean from my people. And yet he's in it because he keeps leading me and he keeps showing up, doing these things, saying you're in the right place. That paralytic needed you to be there. That dead girl needed you to be there. Cornelius is going to need you to be in his home. So let's pick up in our text, verse 9. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop, common place to go, about the sixth hour to pray, common time to be praying. There's three scheduled uh, uh, times of prayer for the, for the Hebrew. Verse 10, he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Anybody else been there? You hear all the preparation going? You're like, I don't think I'm going to make it. I'm going to die. Anyway, I don't know if that's what was going on, but the Lord brought him. He fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, like a big picnic blanket coming down being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. All the things that he would say, okay, we don't eat those things. And yet it looks like it's being prepared like a meal. And he's like, that's not what we do, being good Jews. So a voice came to him in verse 13, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So Peter, because he's completely removed from his flesh, never has a selfish thought in his body, is not anymore in his own strength. He says, that's a great idea. That's what I'm going to do because God said it. No. His first reaction, even in his trance, is by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. 
And the voice came to him again a second time. Uh, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once in heaven. You see, the, the repetition of this means something significant is happening, that God is going to make sure his point is not dismissed, that Peter can't later say, oh, it's just a passing thought. Maybe I was reading into it or maybe it was my idea or something like that. He said, no, I saw this thing happen three times to get the message over. Peter, something is changing and you need to obey me and trust me and walk into this change. Why food? Why is this lesson for Peter about food? Well, one is he's dying of hunger here. So God ever uh, being the master of the teachable moment is like, well, I'm going to hit him where he's, where he's hurting right now. His stomach's empty. Let's talk about food things with him. But, but more than that, the Jew, the Jew and the Gentile distinction in their food was the, the Gentiles eat those things, but the Jew doesn't. Jew eats these things, but not. And then the Gentile be like, ah, you guys are funny. That's all you eat. And they're just, it was a cultural divide for them. But then let's also think about just how it is for us. Food is a very communal thing. When we want to get with somebody, what do we say? Let's go out for dinner together. Come over and have a meal. It's usually awkward if you're trying to get to know somebody or catch up with somebody. If there isn't something on the table in front of you and you're just staring going, where do we start? Food just relaxes that and brings that out of us. We think, I want to go have such and such a type of food tonight. What do we identify that type of food with? The culture in which it was created in or the culture it's most identified with. So food is more than just an object lesson for Peter. It is a a very communal, like something really important is about to happen to the thing that matters the most to us. We're going to eat several times throughout the day. And we're going to care about who we eat with and what we're eating and all these things. So he's bringing it into a place that really matters to his audience. Signaling that there is about to be a bridge built to the Gentiles. This is what Paul explains to us later. We studied this when we came to Ephesians 2. When Paul says in verses 14 and 15, For he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There was a place in the temple where it was a dividing wall. You couldn't be on the other side of it if you weren't part of the club. Jesus was now our peace and broke down that wall of division and hostility. How did he do this? In verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Don't eat this. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, God is telling Peter, I am bringing together the Jew and the Gentile. This was not an easy message for them to hear. There's incredible animosity and hatred between just as an example. Some of you have heard this before. If you're a Jewish midwife, you are told you cannot help a a Gentile baby get born into this world. We are not propagating that race, that ungodly group of people. So there was, there wasn't easy messages for them to hear. This was really not just walking across the street. This is like going into a completely different world. So that's why God had to do this thing three times, lay the sheet down to say twice to Peter, um, excuse me, but don't call these things unclean. If I've said, if I've said that they are common, I mean, if I say that they are clean, This isn't a dismissal of sin. Somebody in our woke culture today could take that text and see that's why everything that you want to do is okay with God. Because he said, "Uh, don't call this unclean. 
But he, he's not done calling other things clean and right. He's not done calling certain things unclean, but he's being specific about this and saying, look, if I say, because I'm creator God, if I say that there's a shift, then we obey it. God's not being inconsistent. He said that these distinctions and all of these cultural differences, these food things and dress codes and all that sort of stuff was to make it, to build a picture, to paint a picture up to the time that Jesus was our perfect sacrifice. Now in him are all of the pictures of those customs. We don't need to live by those customs anymore because he's saying now this is what it all pointed to. God isn't changing his plan. He isn't changing his mind. Ah, oh, yeah, I know we used to call that stuff unclean, but, but yeah, you know, I'm over that now. We always like to hear people talk about the Old Testament God's a God of wrath, New Testament God's a God of grace. It's the same God all throughout, but he had a place to put his wrath, and that was on his son. So how are we supposed to walk in a culturally confused world carrying some of this burden of the pre- preparation of the messenger Most of you will go to a workplace tomorrow or sometime this week. Um, Some of you will not go to an actual workplace, but will work nonetheless. And you'll be around people in environments that don't agree with you, not just because they have a different way of doing things or living or something like that, but they really don't even want to know anything about the God that you follow or you serve. And we wrestle with this. We say, well, I got a job to do, but I still have to hear the water cooler talk or that kind of thing. And I'm not really sure how much do I, do I shine the mega wattage of my faith or, you know, I don't want to be that nerd that everyone laughs at and picks on or any of those kinds of things. And it doesn't seem as though we ever grow out of these concerns. I think as we're seeing the message given to Peter here, we're reminded that what we need to do is to recognize that there is a distinction between the life that we've been called to live, the one that we've been absolutely blessed and and blown away to be a part of, like Peter's humility of like, I can't believe I get to say, Tabita Kumai, I heard Jesus say it, now he's empowered me to do the same thing. That there's a humility that comes with, I can't believe that I get to represent the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why would he choose me? But we have to recognize that they have not yet been called, that they have not yet been forgiven for their sin, that they have not yet seen the light that you and I weren't, aren't there just because we're smarter than them or better than them. But we recognize, I don't know why, but he chose me and he forgave me. We have to remember, and that will fuel us to dare I use a buzzword over the last 20 years that has been uh, not helpful, but we tolerate the sinner. I knew he was going woke. We're talking about the individual. Remember, don't call a clean or even unclean what God has called the opposite. So we know that we have the truth of the Lord on our side, but we look at the individual and we say, but what can I be or do that reaches them in their lost state? I would encourage you as you go to the job, regardless of what it is or where it is or in what context, to study your environment and then to imagine Jesus' approach in that environment, to think, what, who is he in this context? Imagine even, if you will, that Jesus works a few cubicles down from you or in the next department over on the other side of the house that's being built or something along those lines, and you get to overhear once in a while how he interacts in your context. We have his character and his approach in the New Testament spelled out for us. What would he be saying to that person that just annoys you 
What would he be saying? What would he be doing to that person that's trying to, to, uh, to cut around and to get promoted instead? What would he be saying to that person who's trying to come on a little bit too strong or to be flirtatious or to feed the ego or something along those lines? What would he be doing in those contexts that you have to face every single day? Oftentimes what we do is we, we don't give ourselves the ability or the time to learn and to adjust strategically. Instead, we kind of give in either to passive conformity and we just start sounding and acting and behaving like them because it's too hard to swim upstream. Or sometimes we just say, it's too hard to relate. It's too hard to connect. They're too offensive to me. I just going to isolate and cut off. I'm a Christian. They're not. They're dead to me. But I think the gospel calls us into the tension of that to walk strategically in those environments. The same thing at home. We tolerate the stages and the circumstances of the lives of our kids or our spouse or anybody else that we happen to be living in that context with. That perhaps there's a lack of experience or there's a particular struggle that someone's going through. And I've got to think, what is God calling me to do to go to them? Do I know enough of God's design for the family? Do I know whether or not I'm fulfilling his wishes for my family? Does the focus need to be more on what I bring to the table as opposed to what they provide for me? We could even say the same thing in our church life. I mean, we're supposed to be around people that get it, right? But it doesn't always work that way. It's not always, uh, what did we say, peachy earlier about how we go about things. We get a little bit hung up on our preferences of comfort and safety. And yet God keeps calling us out, go to those that make it uncomfortable, welcome those in that aren't like us, all that sort of stuff. And we kind of go, yeah, I don't know what to do with this. I feel like I'm being pulled further and further away from my Jerusalem. But have we learned what God's designed for the church is that it is a church of going that it is a church of discomfort, that we are here for a mission, not just for the moment of. And it is a, a very um, satisfying and tranquil setting for one or so hours of, of your week, and I get that. But have we lost our, our eyes for the design of the church that while it is, yes, a recharge for the batteries, it is also an equipping for the mission that God has called us to? Do we spend our time imagining more the blessings that others can receive by our church as opposed to the ones that I can receive from our church? I'm preaching to the choir. I spend a lot of time here. I like things to be my way. It's uncomfortable to be called into these areas. But if I'm imagining what Jesus would do in the environments of my work or my family or my church, I have to imagine that he would be approaching this with a lot more risk, a lot more danger in view. All right, we're not going to be able to finish, and that's okay. The preparation for us as messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ is bringing us into places that we don't know what it looks like yet. We don't know what it feels like yet. We don't even think that we're equipped for it. But the task for us, the goal for us, the simplicity is to be very, very straightforward. God just said to Peter, Go to these places where you're going to get an invitation. We're going to see this in the text coming ahead. You're going to get an invitation from Cornelius's men. Go with them and make no more distinction about the people that are coming and needing the truth. So Peter just said, okay. He had his little moment there. Not so, Lord. God challenged him that. No, 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 no. That's not what we say. If he's Lord, we say, aye, aye, I will do. 
Cornelius is being prepared. He's being led to the glory of God. It's causing him to seek the truth. And so he sends for the one who can come and deliver the truth. Do we believe? I, I do. I'm just going to you know, give you the answer to the question. I believe that right now as a result of all the weirdness that we've gone through, that there are so many seeking some form of truth. There's got to be more to what I'm hearing. All the institutions, all the philosophies that I've put my faith and trust in are failing me. They don't seem to have any more answers than anybody else. There's got to be somebody out there that has it. We have a tendency to think that it's all going to hell in a handbasket, that no one wants to hear the things of God anymore, but yet that doesn't always seem to be the case with people who are preaching the gospel. As you and I are going to meet the glory of God, we're chasing the glory of God. So are those that he's calling. And we're going to meet those people in that pursuit. And that's what we need to remain available for. Would you stand and let's pray. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. And I want to thank you, Lord, for the the way that you prepare us, we don't always know whether or not you're coming in gentle or you're coming in hot. But you do, and you've had it mapped out, Lord, way before we were even born. So, Lord, we want to be faithful to your leading. We can trust you. We don't need to second-guess you or question you. We can say, yes, sir, knowing that we'll be in your hands and be used by your grace. So we pray, Lord, that we would encounter those who are seeking the grace of God, the glory of God, and finding it in your truth. May we be continually equipped to share it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.